The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move on the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Look at the King James Version of that last one. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. After Adam and Eve in the garden, after they sinned, that we talked about in recent weeks, the the next big thing came along. It was as their son Abel killed Cain. Or Cain killed Abel, rather. Yeah. Cain killed Abel. And so there was the first murder. And then, obviously, from looking at what this scripture text says, from that time on, things kind of just went downhill. It seemed that, as, as they said here, it was human thoughts basically became concerned exclusively with sin. If you look in verse number 5, it says, Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. That's all they thought about. Doing bad, evil, all the wrong things became the inclination of their heart. Basically, man at that point became single-minded in all of his ways, except that it was single-minded towards evil. Now, there's there's a verse in there that, in the King James Version, um, verse number 6. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth. Have you ever read that and thought, does, does God repent? And, you know, when we look at that, you would first thing that come through your mind, or does mine, was it like God made a mistake and he had to go back and fix it? The language of that verse would, at first glance, would probably make us want to believe that, because that's how we see it. But the Hebrew term that is to repent is also translated as grieved or to be sorry. So basically what it's saying is, at that point, God was sorry that he'd even made man. It grieved him. Numbers 23 and 19 says that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. So it wasn't like that that God made man and then said, I just changed my mind, I'm just going to wipe them all out. God knows the end from the beginning, which if we believe that, God knew at the time that he created man that Adam and Eve were going to sin. He knew that Cain was going to kill Abel. He knew that man would become so wicked at some point, that he would have to wipe them out. Amen? Exactly. And he provided a contingency. God does not repent in the sense that that we talk about repenting. Um, Number one, because he's omniscient, it means that he can't be surprised by anything that happens. If he's all-knowing, Anything that happens can't surprise him. If he's the sovereign God, that means only the things that he has planned will happen. So God wasn't surprised at this. He was grieved. Because the Bible clearly teaches that 
we are accountable to God and that God rejoices and sometimes grieves at our actions. And I'll give you an example. In Matthew 18, 12 through 14, there's a, a parable of a shepherd that has a hundred sheep. And one of the sheep has gotten lost. <clears throat> and it says that the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. So there was a sense of loss for this shepherd. And this is speaking in, um, in, as an analogy or as a parable. And this is what the scripture says. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. God's feelings toward us are real. Now, there's a word <clears throat> called anthropomorphic. And it's a big word, but basically what anthropomorphic is... It is a description of God in human terms. There's no other way for us to describe God than in human terms because that's all we know. So we tend to use terms that we can relate to. And what happens is that even though God is described in human terms, it doesn't mean that God has the same human failings. It doesn't make him human because we can only describe him in human terms. So we use terms like it grieved God or it repented God that he had made man and, and how God was sorry that he had made man only because those are words that we understand. But the meaning of that is that God, even though he knew it was going to happen, there was this disappointment that man had gone to that point. And evil had gone to such a point that God had made this choice to destroy his very creation. Now, fortunately, God also had the prerogative to exercise grace. It says he looked at Noah and that Noah was a righteous man and that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This same description of when it says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, same description was used for Moses. Where it talks about that Moses found grace in the sight of God. The term here for grace would be equivalent to the grace that we find in the New Testament. And we're going to talk about some typology here in a little bit. Some, some interesting things about the ark. The Bible says the ark was to be built of gopher wood. And we're not going to get into all the reading of the scripture here, but since we, we know the overall story, let's look at some details and, and make us appreciate it a little bit more, I think. Gopher was a, an actual Hebrew word. The early English translations really didn't know what gopher wood was, and so it was just left out. Later, there was a word put in there. In the NIV, it actually says they used the word cypress wood. Nobody knows in particular that it was cypress wood, but probably the term cypress wood was used because... It was a, a wood that was highly resistant to rot. And it was something that was resistant to water. Now, why is that important? It took 120 years to build the ark. You probably would want a wood that's resistant to rot. 
if it's going to take 120 years to build it. Because if it didn't, by the time you got to the back of the boat, the front's already rotted out and you had to start over. So in the NIV version of the Bible, they use the word cypress. The fact is, we really don't know what type of wood it was. It could have been a pre-flood wood that doesn't exist anymore. Okay? Now, it's also pretty evident that Noah did not construct a standard wooden ship like we think of a wooden ship today. According to nautical engineers, the largest wooden vessel ever built was 360 feet in length, and it was not seaworthy. And we're going to see that the ark was quite a bit bigger than that. Because of the the wave action, wooden boats that are built any larger than that cannot be seaworthy because they just won't stay afloat. They won't stay upright. They tend to just turn over. More than likely, the, the ark was not a boat like we see. I mean, it's a great picture and it's a great painting. You see this mountain and you see this big boat with the big pointed bow and all of that. Chances are it wasn't like that at all. Chances are it was a rectangular-shaped barge. Just a big, rectangular-shaped barge. It probably rode very, very low in the water. Why? So it wouldn't turn over. The Bible makes it clear that they didn't have any control of the the ark, that the ark was strictly under the control of God. There was no steering, there was no... There was no, of course, obviously no engine, but there were no sails or anything like that. Um, so the, the ark had no need to have a bow and a stern, or for non-nautical people, a front and a back. For non-fishermen or seagoing people. The ark had three stories, it was three levels, and it had one door. Kind of like a parking garage. (laughs) Now, the size of the ark. This is incredible. The Bible says the size of the ark was 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits high. Based on historical information, obviously this thing is childproof. Based on historical information, What that comes out to is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now think back what we said earlier. Nautical engineers say the largest wooden vessel ever built was 360 feet long, and it was not seaworthy. God had a much better plan for building a boat than what man did. It was virtually impossible to capsize this boat. It would have to be tilted to over a 90-degree angle in order for it to capsize. Now, here's some interesting information. The ark, based on the fact that it's a rectangular barge, three levels, that size, 
would have a cube, internal cubic volume of 1,518,750 cubic feet. Makes more sense if we write it up here. 1,518,750 cubic feet. That's a lot of space to air condition. That is equivalent to 569 railroad cars. Now, if the average animal was the size of a sheep, you could have put 125,000 sheep on the ark. Now, keep in mind, the average animal was much smaller than a sheep. So there was a bunch of them on there. But when we're little kids, we, we see the ark and we see like 100 animals going on board. You know, and they're going two by two and, and it looks great. It makes a great picture. But think about it. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of animals on the boat. Plus the food to feed them for over a year. So the ark, based on it being rectangular, this is a good... This put it kind of in perspective, would have over a hundred thousand square feet of floor space. Now, how big is a hundred thousand square feet? An average public store is around forty-five thousand square feet. So you take a decent-sized public store; it's more than twice that big in square footage of floor space. A lot of room, a lot of room. Big boat. Now you see why it took one hundred twenty years to build it. Okay, let's go back to our scripture. Genesis 7, verses 1 through 4. This is how you're to build it. <clears throat> Not like that. Then Noah said, then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animals, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animals, a male and its mate. Again, in all the pictures we see, they went two by two when actually they went seven by seven and then two by two. <clears throat> also, seven of every kind of bird, male and female, keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. Noah was the object of God's grace. But also it says that I have found you righteous in this generation. And I believe those two things are linked together. Noah's righteousness, I believe, came from his faith. If you look at Hebrews 11 and 7, this is Paul talking back about some, some of the great leaders of the Old Testament. It says, by faith Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. 
So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but there was a reason why he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He became an heir of righteousness because he was faithful. Now, Noah's family also benefited from this faith. Because the only people that were saved was Noah and Mrs. Noah, and Ham, Sham, and Japheth, and their wives. There was eight people, the Bible says, that were saved on the ark. So how long did it take to build the ark? If Noah started on the ark, right after the scripture says that God told him to build it, up until the time that God told him to get on the boat, it took him about 120 years to build the ark, as we said earlier. It's a popular belief, because it's easier to draw, I'm sure, that the animals went in two by two. When in actuality, the only animals that there were two of were animals that were basically unclean. There were seven of all the clean animals, because clean animals were the ones that could be sacrificed. And if you remember last week, we talked about that up until the time of, of after Noah and his family came off the ark, everybody was a vegetarian. And when they came off the ark, God gave them permission to eat the animals. But there were only certain animals they could eat. That would be the clean ones. Because if you only took two of, of any animal and you ate one of them, you're kind of dooming that species right there. Okay? So, hence, there were seven of the clean animals and two of each unclean animal. Then came the rain. The Bible says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. It also says in, in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 11, it says that the springs of the great deep sprang up. So the water not only came down, but I believe that God allowed springs from under the earth to open up. And the water came from below, it came from above, and it flooded the entire earth. So how long were they in the ark? We just read that the Bible said that God told Noah to go on the ark and that seven days later that it would begin to rain. So they were in there seven days before it even started raining. Genesis 7 and 11. In the six hundred 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were open. So let's look at this. The 600th year, second month, 17th day. Go to Genesis 8, 13 and 14. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. So now he's 601, second month. 27th day, one year, and 10 days. They were on their seven days before it started raining, which means they were on their one year and 17 days.
So now everybody can win at trivia when somebody asks you how long they were on the ark. They were on the ark for one year and 17 days. Now, I'm not sure how that all worked out. But if you had several thousand animals on a closed-in boat for a year and 17 days with no air conditioning, I'm guessing that was not a good situation. That's just me. Genesis 8, 18 through 21. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wives and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination in his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Genesis 9, 12 through 17. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. After the waters receded, Noah and his family and all the animals disembarked from the boat. And the first thing that Noah did was build an altar. And he offered sacrifices and he worshiped God. Then a year and 17 days on a big giant wooden boat with thousands of animals, with no air conditioning, and the first thing he does when he gets off the boat is build an altar and worship God. If we could grasp that concept, that in our life, no matter what we go through, we still, when it's all said and done, we need to build an altar and worship God. And I believe that seeing that everything in the world has been destroyed except what you have right there would be pretty humbling. But that's what he did. And, you know, the the amazing thing is anytime we go through situations in our life, we have two choices. We can either draw closer to God or we can draw away from God. I've seen people do both. I assure you. The right way is to draw closer to God. It would have been easy for Noah to step out of the ark and say, you know what? I'm tired of this. It stinks in there. My house is gone. All my friends are dead. There is nothing out here. Everything on the earth is dead. 
There's no plants. There's nothing out here. This is ridiculous, God. I'm done with you. And you go, that's so harsh. People do it all the time. Something comes up against them in their life, and instead of turning to God and embracing God, as as Pastor Magine talked about, instead of embracing the Spirit, they push it away and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it. It didn't work out like I thought, so I don't want to have anything to do with it. But Noah didn't do that. First of all, he built a boat that was basically impossible to build. He wasn't a shipbuilder. He had people, for 120 years he preached, and nobody listened. But I've witnessed to people and witnessed to people, I've knocked on doors and nobody comes to church. So I'm just giving up. No. Noah preached for 120 years as he built the ark. And nobody but his family was saved. You know why? They didn't believe him. They said, it's going to rain. What is rain? It had never rained before. And you're building this this gigantic barge in your backyard. Yeah. How are you going to get it to the water? What are you, crazy? And I'm sure there's people that look at us. And because we live by faith... And we have the grace of of Christ in our lives. And they look and say, why do you believe that? There's nothing for you to hold on to. It's faith. Through Noah's faith, he received righteousness. Through his righteousness, he received grace. Sound familiar? When we have faith and we believe in the, the, the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ... Through that faith, we can receive righteousness. And through that righteousness, we receive God's grace. Grace being favor that we don't deserve. So God made a covenant with Noah and all men. And he promised that he would never destroy the world by water again. And the sign of that was the rainbow. Now how cool is that that God chose a rainbow... To promise that he would never destroy man by water. A rainbow is formed from water. It's when light passes through little particles of water that we see these different colors. But God used that as a reminder that I will never destroy man again. Now again, this this passage of scripture is that same anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic, statement to where we are using human terms to describe describe God. It's not like God was going to forget that he said he would never destroy man again. So I'm going to put this rainbow here to remind me next time I get upset at man and think about destroying him. No, it was to remind us, not to remind him, so that when we see that rainbow, we can know that, hey, God has promised that eventually this storm's going to go away. Yeah. Now, so you might say, well, what does that have to do with me? I really don't plan on building a boat anytime soon. 
What it has to do with all of us is starting over. Sometimes we have to start over. Sometimes you have no choice but start over. Sometimes it is by choice and you just say, I'm, I'm just going to start over. Noah was 601 years old when he stepped off that ark and started over. Anyone here 601 years old? I, I didn't think so. Some people say, yeah, but I've lived my life for this way for so long that I'm just too old to start over. 601, anyone? <laughs> Salvation is for anyone of any age. My grandfather was in his 80s when he got saved. And probably the only regret he had is that he didn't do it a lot sooner. Fortunately, he lived to be in his 90s, so he, he got to live a, a while as, in that new life. But salvation is for everyone, no matter how old a person is. When we go to witness, we can't say, well, but that person's old, they're getting ready to die, I'll just go to somebody else younger. No. Salvation is for everyone of every age. And there's people that say, well, I know I'm supposed to develop a ministry. See, you knew I was going to get that in there. I know I'm supposed to develop a ministry, but I'm too old. Are you 601 yet? Now, I'll give Noah this. He was 601 when he got off the boat. It took him 120 years to build it. So he was only... 480 when he started preaching. So he was a very young 480. Anybody here 480 years old? No. When Noah started preaching, he was 480 years old. When he started learning how to build a boat, he was 480 years old. That's a long way to be set in your ways before you have to do something you've never done before. Hopefully not. It is never too late for God to use you. Keep in mind, at whatever age you are, it might be in a different capacity than he would have used you in 20, 30, 40 years ago. But he still has a plan for your life. Don't let anybody tell you That God can't use you because of your age. And we hear a lot of times, Paul spoke to Timothy, and and Timothy was a young man. And Paul said, Timothy, don't let anybody despise your age. Just because you're young, it doesn't mean that you can't be used of God. But it goes the same way at the other end of the spectrum. Just because you're a little bit older, doesn't mean that God can't use you in his plan. God has a purpose for everybody in this class this morning. I don't know what it is. But I know that God has a purpose. The reason I know that is, there are things that you can do that I can't do. There are people that you can reach that I can't reach. 
There are people that you can relate to that I cannot relate to at all. That if I sit down and talk to them because I'm so young. Thank you. Because I'm so young, they're going to look at me and say, well, what does he know? He's just a kid. Whereas if Brother Ashley, who is still a young man, it would come across differently. Why? Because they can relate to him and to some of you. The people that you see on a daily basis, maybe that, that are closer to your age, you can relate to them better than I can. Let's look at a couple things. There's a thing called typology. When I was in college and took a class called Old Testament Survey that Jeffrey's taken now, um, one of the things that they talked about a lot was typology. Typology basically is the study of types. You go, well, okay. What are types? A figure, representation, or symbol of something to come. So typology is the study of a symbol that is representing something to come. Okay? We'll go through that again. Typology is the study of something symbolic that is to come at a later time. Let's look at some typology of the ark. Some comparisons. This is going to talk about how the ark is a type of typology of the plan of salvation. God took the initiative in sparing Noah and his family. Romans 5 and 8. But God demonstrates his own love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God took the initiative for our salvation that while we were still sinners, that that plan of salvation was set up. We talked earlier about that from the beginning of time, God knew that man was going to fall. He knew that man would become wicked and that he would have to destroy man. But he provided a way out. For those that were faithful. I believe at that same time, he looked way, way past that. And the Bible says here that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what did the two have in common? God took the the initiative to save Noah and his family. He also took the initiative to provide a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. There was only one door in the ark. Acts 4 and 11. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There was one door, and there's one door now. Jesus said he's the the door. In in NIV, I think it says he's the gate. Exactly. There was security in the ark. Romans 8 and 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If we have Christ and we have his spirit living in us, then we can say, if God is for us, then who can be against us? We have security. 
starting to see how this ark thing kind of, it was a type. It was a foreshadowing of something that was to come. It was basically Noah and his family's salvation. Right? It was their salvation. There was only one mean, means of salvation. And Noah preached that if you don't get on the ark, you're going to die. Nobody listened. And we do the same thing today. We, we, or we're supposed to. We're supposed to be out spreading the good news. Not so much of, of saying, if you don't get your heart right, you're going to go, hell, go to hell. I mean, that's not a very good way to approach it, even though it's the truth. And at some point, that fact still remains. But there are so much more that we can talk about, about the grace. I believe that if Noah was really going to be effective... He probably spent more time talking about the safety in the ark than about the dying if you didn't get in. When we witness to people today, we need to talk about the grace of God and the salvation that comes through the grace of God as opposed to starting off the conversation with you're going to die and go to hell. That's just me. Sure. When we talk about the goodness of God, people will want to know more. Starting over. Maybe you've come to a point in your life and you said, well, you know, I've done some stuff and um, I'll just leave it up to somebody else. It would have been easy for Noah to tell his sons, look, God told me that I was to build an ark, but I'm really old. I'm just going to leave it up to y'all. You know what? That wasn't the way it's supposed to be. And it's not supposed to be that way now. At whatever place you are in your life, God has something for you to do. I'll give you an example. At a lot of churches across the country this morning, when the worship team gets up to sing, the average age for the worship team will probably be somewhere in their 20s. I won't try to venture what the average is for our worship team, but I'm guessing that the youngest is in their early 40s. So that would definitely make the average a little bit higher than 20s. But you know what? God has called each of those people to do something. And because God called them to do it, they're following through and they're doing it. And how old they are or how young they are doesn't have anything to do with it. God called them to do it and they're doing it. Sister Dehart. I remember when Sister Dehart came to church here. She sang, played the piano, was in the choir, just like everybody else. You know, that's, that's what God, if God calls you to do something, then you do it until he calls you to do something else. Amen. 
Sister Joan. She changes the sign out here. She's a, a little bit over 35. She and Sister Comer, I should, shouldn't say she does by herself. There's a team there. And, and it's quite a, a chore, cause, but it, it's, it's not as hard as you would think. But it's, it still takes some effort to do, to come up with the ideas and then get the letters spaced out and put the big panels up there. But you know what? They do it. And that is one of the ministries that they're involved in. You know why it's a ministry? Because everyone that drives by this church right here sees that sign out there. Is it important? You bet. Now, I'll give you an example of something that I can't do. Recently, we've, we've begun to, to put our sermons online where people can listen live. <clears throat> now, when Daniel set that up, being the computer whiz that he is, he told me something, and I went, oh, that's cool. I didn't know what he meant. <laughs> but he said that a person can download these sermons on their iPod as a, a podcast. And I went, oh, that's good. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. But I got an email this week. From somebody that said, I've been downloading your sermons on my iPod through the podcast, and there was two of the last ones that I wasn't able to, to download. Could you tell me if I'm doing something wrong? And my first response was, no. So I typed back, I can't help you, but I'm going to send this to someone that can. I send it to Daniel. The next day I get an email from that person again, and they said, thank you, I went to download, and not only could I download those two, but there was a bunch of new ones on there, and I've got those. And I've downloaded them to my iPod, and I listened to them all week long. And I thought, wow, that's cool, we got one person that listens. Daniel comes to me this morning, and I was thinking, man, I wish I knew if somebody else was listening. He says, you know... A couple days ago, I was looking at the, the log. There actually is something that shows how many people. He said two days ago, there was 65 downloads. 65 downloads. That means a sermon that Brother Magine preached or a Sunday school lesson that was taught in here, there were 65 people that downloaded it and listened to it. Why? Because somebody did something that I didn't know how to do. I'm not capable of doing that. And there's things that you are capable, that I'm not capable, and that I'm capable, that you're not. And that's why together we fit together as a body of Christ. It takes all of us to see happen what we want to have happen. Now... Brother Forte is another, and he's in Kuwait. And yet he's able to download the sermons and listen to them where he is. I mean, is that amazing or what? It's amazing. And I thought, you know what? If, if those people never show up 
at High Point Church of Brandon. And through those messages, they hear about the goodness of God and the grace of God. And they are able to, to go to God and say, God, I, I, I don't know a lot about what they're talking about, but I want, I want that salvation. I want you to forgive me of my sins and fill me with your spirit. If that happens, that's all that matters. And it happened through a means that a year ago we didn't even have available. And that most of us in this room right now wouldn't have a clue how to set up or keep it going. But it's being done. You listened to it before you came? Okay. There's an example. Thank you very much. It's amazing. And you say, well, but I can't do that. But there's something you can do. I look at the people that that come out here and spend so much time keeping this building looking like it looks. How incredible is that? As a ministry, it's a phenomenal ministry. Because people come in this place and they look and say, wow, these people must care about this place. They do. And our ushers that, that stand at that door and welcome everybody that comes through that door. How incredible is the job they do? It's important. If you haven't found your place, find your place. God has a place. I look at Brother Wiley. Every Sunday night when church is dismissed, it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing, he goes and he has a certain task that he does. That's part of his ministry. You say, well, I don't see how that's a ministry. It all has to do with the body of Christ. And we're all different members of the same body in particular. Now, moving on just a second. New beginnings. There's another new beginning, and that's when we come to a a point in our life to where maybe things have just been so much bad in our life. And even though we can't erase our past, it's not as simple in our life as that right there. Because there's nothing that we can do to do that. I don't have the ability to erase my past. But when God forgives our sins, He gives us a brand new beginning. In the lesson, there was an example that it, it was like if you had a book that, that was everything that you had ever done. Rather than go through and erase all the pages, when Jesus Christ gave his life on Calvary and his blood was shed, it was like the book that he wrote of his life, it was like a book exchange program. He took our book and he gave us his book. He took our sins upon him so that we didn't have to pay for them. That's right. There is no job in the body of Christ that is insignificant. And even more, and going on from there, 
Once we've received the salvation of God, it continues in, in our life that if we fall, or if it seems like the entire world has fallen around us, God is still there. It's not a one-shot thing. We get saved and God says, okay, you're on your way there, big guy. Knock yourself out. No. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His compassions never fail. He is always compassionate. It's new every morning. It's not a one-shot deal. Salvation isn't get it and go. It's that He is there. When, when we stumble and maybe we make a mistake and we say or do something that, that we know we shouldn't have said or done, God is there to pick us up. When we have gone through our life and we get to a point in our life and it seems like everything in the world has crashed around you. Everything that you have worked for all your life has just been totally destroyed. God is still there. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 22 again. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. There is love for us always. When he loves us, he loves us completely. Unconditionally. And I'll close with this. With God's help, and I preface this with with God's help, No matter who you are, how old you are, where you are, where you have been, or what you have done, you have a promise of a new beginning. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Shall we stand together? What an awesome Bible class this morning. Amen.